welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Over the next three weeks, we are going to do something that we've actually never attempted here at Gateway, at least not not directly anyway. Um, We're going to spend three weeks raising, talking about, discussing the issues of uh, mental health. Um, Many of you will be aware that this has been Mental Health Week, and uh, to tell you the truth, I'd love to say that we wonderfully planned this series to coincide with Mental Health Week, and um, we were severely tempted to do that. Um, However, it's absolutely providential. Uh, When we arranged the series, we had no idea that this was actually Mental Health Week, and so it turns out to be, um, as I say, quite providential. (coughs) I think nearly all of us were incredibly shocked a month or so ago when TV personality Greg Boyd uh, took his own life tragically. And it has thrown back into the public arena and into the light this whole issue of mental health and New Zealanders. And we have to be incredibly honest and say... Uh, mental health issues and particularly the end result often of mental health issues, suicide, is uh, epidemic among us. Um, Close to 700 people took their own lives last year in New Zealand. We have the highest youth suicide rate in the 41 countries that are in the OECD. 20% of us, if statistics are correct, have experienced or are experiencing ongoing psychological distress of sufficient intensity that thoughts of suicide um, have either been regular or at least are present on some occasions. Um, Because you're a believer, because you're a Christ follower, you're not exempt from those issues in the same way that you're not exempt from heart disease or cancer. And if you go through the scriptures and look at people of faith who struggled with what we would term mental health issues, maybe depression, the the list is significant. You've got people like Moses, Elijah, Jonah, and possibly Paul. Paul says on one occasion in 2 Corinthians, we despaired even of life itself. I don't quite know what that means, but I suspect that deep, dark depression could well have been something that at least on that occasion he experienced. So if These kinds of people, if these people of faith struggled with these issues, it's highly likely that we will too. And I don't know that we have served our Christian communities well by not talking about these issues, by pretending they don't exist, or by um, foolish Christian cliches, you know, like pray it away, um, just, you know, sing songs of praise, all of which might be part of a journey However, to say that to somebody who is in a deep, dark, yawning abyss of depression really is just a slapdown. And so rather than deal with it tritely, over these next three weeks, we would like to try and engage this issue, talk about it honestly. Um, we, we are not experts and don't lay claim to being experts. What we hope to do is simply raise the issues. And if Uh, We touch on things that are very tender in your experience or the experience of someone you love, then the invitation is there that you would um, reach out to get help, okay? So first up this morning, Chris is going to chat with Sue Powell. 
Sue has been part of our congregation for a number of years now and has a, a, a unique story to tell and Chris is going to unpack that story with her this morning. So would you give her a hand this morning? <laughs> When Greg Boyd committed suicide, uh, I remember reading the event on, on Stuff or on New Zealand Herald and online quite a lot, and they talked about the fact that he had died, that he was in Switzerland and that he passed away. And nowhere was it said that he had committed suicide. When they did a tribute to him on NZ1 that evening, no one mentioned suicide whatsoever. Actually, when you read New Zealand Herald or Stuff, they said that he had died, and as I said, didn't mention suicide. But then they went on to list a whole pile of helplines that you could go to, the Samaritans, etc. So not saying anything about suicide, they mentioned it actually in the helplines. But I was really concerned, and not only myself, but a lot of people were concerned, why not call it for what it is? What is the stigma, what is the shame that even when we're reporting about someone who is quite famous in our, in our nation commits suicide, but we are reluctant to mention the word Suicide. There's a culture of shame and stigma and guilt around it. But around every suicide, there is a story. There's a tragic story. There are those who are left behind, who cannot put into words what they face. Each event, as I said, is not a statistic. It is a real story. And so today, this morning and this evening, Sue has agreed to tell her story around Pete's death. Pete uh, passed away six years ago, we'll come into that, but uh, Sue wants to talk about it this morning. She talked about it a couple, for about five minutes at a, at a woman's event a couple of years ago, and it had such an impact that we just thought, who could we go to to talk about suicide in these three weeks? And we went to Sue, and from the very moment that we asked her, you said yes, for which we are incredibly thankful. This is Sue's story. This is somewhat raw. That's why we put on a program for Emerge this morning when there wouldn't normally be one. This is not a theological explanation. This is not theologically necessary correct. We are hearing someone's story. It is not sugar-coated. It is an invitation for Sue to be very open and honest and say things that she is still processing and that we all need to hear. So I wanted to put that as a backdrop before we get into this this morning, that this, these are Sue's thoughts, and we're having a conversation as two friends around this, and we invite you to eavesdrop, really, on what we are going to talk about. Thanks, Sue. So I'm just going to tell my story. And I'm going to interrupt you occasionally. And he's going to interrupt, which is quite normal, really. Just <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of Andrew White all over again. You said you'd behave yourself, to be fair. <laughs> I'll probably just read my notes more than look at you all, because I grew up in a, Christian, a very strong Christian home and became a Christian at nine. I had a heart for missions, and when I was 25, I went to Bible college, and shortly after that, joined Youth with a Mission, ending up on staff in Australia. I was asked if I would be a nanny for a couple and their two boys, and immediately went to God and asked him what he thought. Very clearly, he told me that I was to go back to New Zealand as he had a man for me. I was now 30 and well and truly felt I was on the shelf. 
I returned to New Zealand at the end of 1986 and in February of 87 started working with youth. The man God had for me was part of the staff and Pete asked me out in April. On our first date, I asked him if he was interested because if he wasn't, then I needed to move on as God had a man for me. Always direct and straight, so. Very. Tell us what you think. I don't want to muck around. He was interested, and we were engaged in August and married in December. That had to be <coughs> December, because earlier God had told me before I met Pete, but in 1987, that I would be married that year. <laughs> in 1990, I went back to Bible college where Pete studied and I worked to help put him through. It was only for a year. And after that year, Pete was inducted as a pastor. And at the same time, our first daughter, Becca, was dedicated. Let me just jump in there. So as we've talked a bit about this, you know, we've looked back on this. We've talked a lot about your, your journey with Pete. Mm. You don't have any regrets about marrying Pete, do you? You have no regrets at all. None whatsoever. I believe that, like with Esther in, the, in her story, that for such a time as this, she was brought in to be queen. And not saying I was a queen, but at that time for Pete, I was to be his wife. And you quite firmly and strongly and passionately believe in the sense that your role was in Pete's life for this time that he was on earth. You just, you don't feel any real anger at that, in that sense of getting married to Pete. No, absolutely. I. I loved a lot of it and my girls. Mm. So two daughters? Yeah, two girls. Just tell us a little bit about them. Um, so Becca and Derek live in Auckland. They used to come here. Um, Becca's 27 and <laughs> Sarah um, is in the front here and she's 25. <laughs> um, so Becca is a teacher, um, and Sarah is unemployed at the moment. Sarah, good to see you. So you, you had two daughters, then you had three pastorates over a period of 15 years. Four pastorates. Four pastorates, yeah. Talk to those a little bit. Where were they? Okay, so when we first were in pastoral ministry, we went to Point Chevrolet Baptist. It was a really old pastorate, um, as in people. Um, and when we went there, we were the only ones with children. Um, so Pete began to stir up the community. He went door to door. He had a passion for evangelism. We were in an area where Carrington had not long broke, um, closed down, so we had a lot of mental health people that he was visiting in their homes, and a lot of those people came to our church. Um, so we were there for two and a half years. Then he built the church that is now new at Point Chevalier Baptist, which was moved from a side street to a main street. So he's also a carpenter. Pete had a quite a traumatic conversion, didn't he? He was in the hippie scene, drugs, alcohol. Just yeah. before you come back to the next pastor, sorry. Okay. He does interrupt, doesn't he? <laughs> um, he was a hippie. He um, had very long hair. One time, um, this young bikey guy drove past, all greasy and yucky looking, um, and I remember pulling my nose up and thinking, yuck, and God said to me, Pete used to look like that. 
So that was a bit of a pull-up for me. Um, so he was a bit of a hippie. He lived in a house truck which he built himself. It was run by coal gas. He was very, very clever. He could put his hand to anything. And for the um, time that he was in the house bus, um, he travelled all around New Zealand. Um, then he moved to Waihi, set up business as a carpenter there um, in, a, in a house, in a garage in the house. And he used to listen to... Um, the Christian radio program on the national program, uh, national station, um, I forgot what it's called now, but it was really common in those days. He used to listen to that, not being a Christian himself, and when the guy told him that, said the verse about the sparrow falling to the earth and God noticing that, that was the thing that changed Pete's life and he became a Christian through that verse and got involved in the church there in Waihi. He made him quite an evangelist, wasn't he? Yeah, it was absolutely. absolutely. So he was rabid. Mm -hmm. So when he went into your first church, it really stirred the, the folks up. He did, it. he did, he did. So we go back to your pastorates. Okay, so, and then we went to um, Whangamata Baptist, um, and he worked alongside Robbie Harwood there, um, and again, he got, um, he kind of pulled in people who were on the fringe, people who were from kind of like the alternative lifestyle, particularly in Whangamata, and had a real impact in their lives. People came to the Lord. It was fantastic. Um, but just like in Point Chevalier, they ran out of money for him. They ran out of money for him in Whangamata Baptist. So then he went to a conference um, during that time and he came back and he said to me, um, darling, um, I talked to this guy, Bob, and he said that um, there's a pastorate going at Kafia. He said, what do you think about that? And I said, not much, really. Um, there's no way I'm going to Kafia. Um, I'd been there once, as probably some of you have. Um, so, so, yeah, that was a no. Um, and then Pete was away some weekend or some week, I think, and I got mail in the post for him from Bob, and I opened it because you do, to be nosy. And um, Bob was so passionate about the pastorate at Kafia. Um, at God, and God just did something in my heart and when Pete came home from wherever he'd been I just said yeah let's go so it was a God thing and we went for seven and a half years and he absolutely loved it there um, yeah and he it was very much like being missionaries there we were <coughs> supported by people um, who were friends of ours and we were half paid um, and so just part paid by the church and the rest was supported by people. And it was a culture who was, that was very different to us, very mouldy. Um, there was an 11-year-old girl in the church who was merciless with me and if I didn't say the words correctly, she gave me a hard time. So I learned to say things more correctly. Um, and it, Pete, if Pete, if we had stayed there, to, he'd still be here today. And then... One of the things... Part of what we want to do this morning is to get to know Pete as, as a guy, a guy who had a passion for his family, passion for his church, passion for his God. But one of the things that I know we started to talk about at this time was you started to notice that Pete was suffering with burnout and was slowly suffering a little bit with depression. Do you want to speak to that? Um, yes, so towards the end of our time in Carfair, even though he loved it there, it was starting to wear him down. I think he felt quite isolated um, because it was a long way from anybody um, who, were, who was in the hierarchy of the church. 
Um, and I noticed that. And so I said, I think that we need to move to Hamilton for the girls' sake, for schooling as well. Um, but I had begun to notice things and... What, what, what were those things? Um, just that he was getting a little bit more grumpy with people, but short with people, um, less likely to be... Um, yeah, more less likely to be diplomatic. Um, and people were saying things. Well, we were being worn down. We had a domestic violence beside us, people living beside us, and they were wearing us down, um, and we weren't getting any help from the community because they just saw us as being these white people who um, didn't really understand domestic violence in that culture. So would, so would you say Peter was getting depressed now, or was it just burnout? Um, it, it was more burnout. He wasn't so depressed because he still loved kafia and he had a passion for kafia. He was part, he was a St John ambulance driver as well, which he loved to do because he loved to put the siren on. <laughs> he was a cowboy. <laughs> Talk to us about Pete's slide from burnout into depression and what... The, because from what you say, Peter was quite a comedian, he was quite a funny guy, and he could make people laugh, but there was a side that was slipping away from him in some ways, wasn't there? That didn't happen until we came to Hamilton and lived, and we went to um, North West Baptist, and we were pastoring there, um, but it had, for the next, um, so 2005, six, and seven, were... <laughs> I watched a slow decline as he got more and more grumpy with people, short with people, but he was still really passionate and he wanted to reach out to the people who were on the outskirts, but I think he struggled sometimes when the people in the church weren't quite so patient with that and so he would get short with them and stuff like that. And so I asked for him to have a sabbatical. We'd been in ministry for 15 years and never had a sabbatical and so I asked for that and he desperately needed it um, they finally gave it to us because they could afford it and so we had three months sabbatical so would you and Pete talk about depression would you say Pete what's wrong with you what's happening in your life what's going on can we talk about how would he respond to that I never did <coughs> say that um, because I didn't really realise what he was suffering Mm. When you're in it, you don't really understand what's going on. Um, and so I can, I, later on down the track, I could see it more, but I was in survival mode. So you were just getting through? Yeah. I, I, if I suggested that he sought help, he would brush me aside because he saw that staying in as a pastor, he couldn't do that if people knew that he was depressed. A couple of things. Pete wrote something that you found recently off a, few years, a couple of years after. Do you want to read that out? Do you want me to finish my story first? <laughs> <laughs> Let's just keep going the way we are. <laughs> I'm You're the boss. Keep... <laughs> you promised me two things. <laughs> You promised me you would behave yourself, and you promised you wouldn't swear. I, I haven't sworn. No, you haven't. And, and I should have asked you to promise me not to interrupt. 
I'm only on page one. I, I'm, and I'm here to get you to the end so that we finish today. <laughs> so, 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 I, so go on. I found this in his Bible um, after he had died. And I, I don't know how long after he died, but I found it. And this is what it says. I live in quiet desperation, in an atmosphere of quiet, discouraging discouragement. I am cared for well, well enough to keep me in life, but not alive. On life support, massive input. Ventilated, medicated, nourished, but not living. Jailed in paradise, home detention. Life is a bitch and I long to die. One of the things you said when we met earlier this week that really impacted me uh, was, as a pastor <coughs> and as, as, as a guy, he failed to live out of his values he failed to do what he expected or asked other people to do. What, what did you, what, I know what you mean by that, but for the folks here this morning, what does that look like? There was a, just a sentence the other day that I read and it said, expression is the opposite of depression. Um, Pete didn't like to talk about how he was feeling um, because then he would be having to be honest and vulnerable. Um, it was okay for him to speak into other people's lives, but don't start on mine. Um, and I just wish that the mess that was in him had become his message when he was... Um, Working later, when he'd finished in the ministry, he went back to carpentry and he would visit people in their homes because he was fixing their homes. And they were often people who were down and out and depressed and lonely. And um, I used to get quite excited and say to him, isn't it fantastic you're having one-on-one -on -one with these people in their home? What a ministry. But he didn't appreciate and grasp the opportunity of evangelism that was so much on his heart in the early days and had God had almost like returned it to him but he didn't see it, he was too far gone. It's really powerful and we're going to probably come back to that in the next couple of weeks about the importance of not just having values but actually living them out and doing what we say we're going to do, what we expect of others. I think you said that... Um, for Pete, the cup was always half, half, half empty. Half, yeah. And mine was half full. <laughs> yeah. No, is that right? Anyway. We know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I remember a few weeks ago when I was doing some research or one of the sermons that I spoke, it says a man isn't who he says he is, but what he hides. I think that was probably true with Pete, wasn't it? In the sense, those things that he was hiding. Yeah, I, I probably I don't know if I should say this, but... I'm going to say it, and maybe people will offend me. Do you think that Pete was a typical Kiwi male? Um, 
I think that it's quite common for men, full stop, whether you're big Kiwi or not. My brother-in-law in the UK um, is, you know, British. Um, and so it's the stiff upper lip for him, um, and you don't really know what's going on inside his heart. The humour behind that, if you, the way that Sue said that was, she said when we were chatting that he was English. And I said, well, what do you expect? He's English. So she's actually tempered that and said it correctly, so I couldn't come back at her. And she said he was British, so she was trying to put one over on me there. Thank you. <laughs> that was very good. Um, again, one of the things that we've talked about is the atmosphere at home. That was not good. No. Um, so for the... From 2008 on until 2012, it was a steady decline um, in his depression um, and oppression and blackness. And I was thinking the other day, um, I remembered that Sarah and I um, have talked about it since, that there was a smell about Pete that um, we only could put down to as the smell of death. and. That was not that he was uh, didn't sh shower, but <clears throat> there was this kind of thing about him, and there was an oppression about him. And I used to lie in bed beside him, and he never ever hit me or anything like that. But I'd feel the oppression, and I'd be scared of it. I'd feel like um, almost like it was it was going to lash out at me. And I remember getting out of bed on many occasions and going and sleeping in the spare bed just simply because I was, I wanted to be restful and to sleep. And in the morning he would say to me, you left me. He was very dramatic. Um, and I'd say, yeah, because you were snoring or try and make up some excuse. Um, and he was very intolerant and impatient towards the end. Um, he would um, hate it when I would take the girl's side on an issue, whereas he was being absolutely ridiculous about something, and I would try and, you know, bring the peace, and he would just say that I was siding with the girls, and it was just the girls and I. Um, there were plants in my garden, punga trees in particular, that lost their fronds, they literally died off um, two particular trees, and after he died, they sprouted again. So there were things like that that were incredibly um, tangible. Um, I would go to work. I worked for Central Baptist Childcare. I worked there eight and a half years, and for the last time while Pete was alive, it was my sanctuary. I'd go there and just want to stay there. I would go home dreading what I would find and often find he would be in his lazy boy with his, what we called his mouldy blanket over him. It was one of those big, um, like, velvety type ones with mouldy design. He would just have that over him. Another thing I've just remembered is that he would wear a camouflage cap, a camouflage um, 
sweatshirt and camouflage pants and he would walk into a room and he'd say, you can't see me. Can I just... <coughs> this was an incredible lonely time for you. And you said the other day that you, you found your sanctuary in work. What advice, or what would you say to someone who is in exactly that position this morning? Whether it be the husband or a wife or a partner or a family member. What would, have, would there have been anything that could have rescued you in that situation? I know that Pete's situation wouldn't have changed, but what would you have done for yourself? I was talking to people about what I was struggling through in a kind of a very roundabout way. Sometimes I wasn't very specific to people, but um, to others I was. Um, and they would just be there and listening, a listening ear for me. But I wanted, I, I would want, would have wanted somebody to come in and get a hold of him and just shake him and say, come on, this isn't the way to be this, you can get out of this, you need help. Um, he went for counselling during the sabbatical and the woman who counselled him had been a friend of mine way back and it was quite neat to reconnect with her. Um, but later after he had died, I went to see her again and she said there was no, he wasn't teachable and he analysed her. Um, so, so he was counselling the counsellor? Yeah. <laughs> As we, you know, just watching the time, let's talk in the run-up to Pete's, Pete's suicide and, and his death. Um, Pete talked about it several times, doesn't he? When we were going out, um, not long after we started going out, he said to me that he had got really, really down to it and quite lonely and... He had said to God, um, I know that you need to, you should be enough for me, but I long for a woman to love. And, um, but he got really down and he said, oh, I did consider, he, he lived in, um, oh, near the railway line here. He said, I did consider jumping in front of a train. But that went over my head. I just thought he was being a drama queen. When he, because he was very, eloquent and very good at putting guilt on you, on me. Um, I know this sounds all negative, but we did have a lovely marriage and he was a wonderful husband to me. But when he was a boy, um, his mother and the children were in the home one day and his father's mother um, came round and knocked on the door and she was annoying them and she had done it on several occasions and she just said, I just want to end it all. I'm just sick of my life. This was his grandmother. And Gloria, Pete's mum, said, oh, just go and do it. She was fed up with him, her because she had been very on about that on many occasions and unfortunately she did. So that was part of Pete's life. Actually... Again, we may look at this next week, and the fact is that there is a link generationally in suicide. If it's happened in your family, that there is a link. But that's for another Sunday. Did you think that he would ever commit suicide? No, no never ever thought he would. <coughs> no. 
So you don't feel, sense any guilt that you missed any signs or anything like that? No, because he kept it all to himself. He, <coughs> he planned it for three years when we look back because he had accumulated particular um, medication to take his life. So he planned it for three years at least. At talk, least. talk about the events uh, around the day so that folks have little understanding of what happened. Sorry, just trying to find where I was. Okay, uh, July 2012, we went on a holiday for a week and it was a lovely time. We had bike rides, we took the boat out on the lake, we had coffee at a local, local cafe and we had snuggly fires in the evenings, just the two of us. We returned from holiday, so that was on the Saturday, and on the Monday, the 16th of July, I returned to work. It was pouring with rain and blowing a gale, so Pete snuggled down as the job he was to do that day was outside, and he loved to snuggle down. I kissed him goodbye. I arrived home about 4.30 and I asked Sarah where Dad was and she said, he's at work. And I said, he didn't go to work, the weather was too bad. I went upstairs and he wasn't in bed. That's odd, his car's in the garage. Pete didn't do walk and his shoes were all accounted for. Alarm bells started to ring. Maybe Becca and Derek had come and picked him up to go and check out a house that they were looking to buy. They finally text back and no, he wasn't with them. And he wasn't visiting his dad or his sisters either. And he wasn't at the neighbours. During this time, I kept texting him. The girls went on Facebook asking if anyone had seen him and I texted others he knew. After all avenues had been exhausted, I stood at the kitchen bench and I stilled myself. God told me, I have him. He's with me. Wow, the peace that came over me was incredible. But I knew I couldn't say this to anyone, not yet. The police came, friends came, people searched, night came. It was still raining and windy. Sarah and I lay on mattresses in the lounge and I kept texting Pete. No answer. We didn't sleep much. We were reminded of something Pete had said back in March when he was very upset over an issue. Hmm. Something big is coming, something really big, and you're all going to regret it. At the time, I felt like I'd been punched in the stomach, and he wouldn't elaborate, just quietly fumed. Is this what he meant? asked Sarah as we lay in the lounge. The next day, a larger search took place, and at 11am on the 17th, he was found. He had gone. My girls were devastated. It broke my heart when the first thing Sarah said was, he'll never walk me down the aisle. He'd walked Sarah down, uh, Becca down in March. Watching my two girls absorb this news was overwhelming. I felt like I cheated. I knew he'd gone. Do you feel angry with first Pete and second God? I don't know that I, I've not really, I felt anger, anger at times, like I remember when the, the lawnmower wouldn't go for me um, and I was kicking it around the backyard and I got so angry and I said, 
And what did you think? Who's going to do this? Um, things, little moments, but not on a, on a big scale. My anger lately has been more... Um, of, uh, more angry at, at the um, effect it's had on my girls. Um, more latterly. Um, I'm a bit thick. Um, I struggle with twigging onto things and over the last two weeks Sarah's been kind of really kind of down and I just thought it was to do with pain because she'd had surgery. <coughs> and then I was talking to Jan about things and she gave me the book that, say, that says Living with the Black Dog um, and it's all about somebody who lives with somebody with depression. And as I read it, I realised that actually Sarah had been struggling with depression. You know, not that I should not understand, but anyway, I didn't. So I'm cross about the fact that both Becca and Sarah struggle with emotional well-being now. Um, and I don't know if that would have been an issue to the degree it is um, if he was still here today. And God... And God, no, I don't. Um, God is. God knew the big picture from the beginning. Um, he knew that I could cope with having Pete as my husband. He knew that I was big enough and ugly enough to put up with it. Ugly enough because when Pete first ever saw me, and he'll tell, he would tell the story quite freely. Um, I walked into the room, so it was a Christian workplace where we worked with youth and we all, they would all sit around and have prayer times in the morning and so when I walked into the room they all had their heads bowed as you do and he said I walked in and he looked at me from my feet up to my face and he went thank God she's ugly because he was so involved with working with the youth that he was working with and he didn't want any distractions. However, over the next three months, he was continually going past my office and annoying the living daylights out of me. Um, and eventually we married, so I can't have been that ugly. <laughs> Time's... <laughs> Time's gone, just a couple of... Couple of questions. If somebody's in this situation, pre-suicide, somebody's here this morning. What advice? What help can you say? Is there anything that you can say that will just give a sense of hope at all? If there's anybody out there who's feeling like this, then you please talk about it with somebody. Please ask for help. If there's someone out there who sees somebody in their life who's like this, um, the same. I felt so isolated and lonely and quite... Um, I, I, I wasn't really allowed to speak. And I think that that can be the controlling situation that you might be in. Um, if you're the spouse of someone who's d very depressed because it's such a private thing, but we as, we as Christians need to stop mucking around and we need to start to, sh to say how it is for each other, for ourselves. 
I, um, we'd go to church together. The last four years of our lives together was fabulous because I got to sit next to my husband, having not had that because he had always been the pastor, and I loved it. But we would walk into church and there would be somebody at the door and he would shake their hand and they would say to him, how are you, Pete? And he'd say, I'm good. And afterwards I'd go, I'd hit him and I'd say, why don't you tell them that you're really struggling? Um, and so it wasn't for me to, to do that. I was crying out to other people, um, but he was saying to me, no, don't talk about it, don't, no. And it was all this loyalty and we keep it inside and we don't tell the world because if we tell the world, then they'll think that Christians are just falling apart everywhere. But we are. We, none of us is perfect. We all struggle with mental health. We all have things that we don't want to tell people about because we're scared that you all think, well, I'm not a good Christian and I must be on my way to hell by now. So... Talk, talk to each other. Say, it's really hard. I need, I need you to hear me. I, I wished I had been more... I wished I had been less in survival mode and more understanding of what depression was. So there's so much we could have talked about and there's so much on our, in front of us that we haven't got to and time has gone. I want to just say a huge, huge thank you for what you've done this morning. Uh, incredibly gutsy, incredibly brave. One of the things that people have said to us, what we want to accomplish over these three weeks with mental health is that um, we just want people to say it's okay to talk about this stuff. It's okay to say I'm struggling, to say I'm depressed, say I'm anxious, say I'm suicide, suicidal, that we give permission just to say it's okay to talk and we will help you. And um, one of the things that we, we want to do is to, as everybody leaves, we're going to give you a leaflet. And we're deliberately giving you one of these leaflets. It's, got, um, it's, talk, it's entitled, Let's Talk About Mental Health. <laughs> and it's got some helplines on the back. And it's got the church pastoral care line as well. And what we're going to do is not, we're not going to put them on, on, on the coffee bar at the back of the information desk and say, please go and help yourself. Because most of us, even if we were struggling, wouldn't go there and get one. So what we're doing is we're giving it to everybody. No one can not go away with one in their hand, and we've been quite deliberate about that. So please take this, and we've got a magnet on it, put it on your fridge. If it's not for you, to help you, to help somebody else, please take this with you. Well, we're going to finish with hope. Yes, we're going to finish up there with hope. Because we're going to finish up with hope, and then we're going to pray, and maybe the music musicians could make their way, please. <coughs> One of the things that I, I wrote in my notes is that we need to finish with a note of hope, not because we want to just rah-rah, but we just want to be in the sense that we do have a hope. And I was saying that to Sue this morning when she came in and she said, oh, I read this morning, can I speak about this chapter or this verse or can I mention what I read this morning? And it's all to do with hope. And so, do you want to speak about what you... Uh, well, I left the verse down there, but never mind. Um, it's in 1 Peter 1, so ready for yourselves because you've all got Bibles. Um, but, you know, I am six in some months, years down the track, and so are my girls, and so are others who were influenced by my husband's death. He mentored a young guy who used to help with the youth, with some of the young people here in this church, and 
after Pete died, he couldn't cope with living in Hamilton anymore. So it wasn't just us as a family. He now lives in Tauranga because it just broke his heart what Pete did. And so, I, But I want to say that God is good and he is good all the time. And he is the only one that gets me through my day-to-day living. And I just thank God for him. I thank God that he's there for me. And he's there for every one of us. And he's the only way that any of us is going to get through. And I know that sounds very cliche, but he's all I have to hold on to on a day-to-day basis. And I just thank Jesus. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.